Hi, my name is Christopher Lawson, cardiologist at Frisbee Hospital, and you're listening to the Rochester Post podcast with Matt Wyatt. Hey, Dr. Lawson, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. I know you have a very busy schedule, but I'm happy that you took some time to come on the day before Thanksgiving to talk a little bit about what you do at Frisbee. And um, while we're on that subject, tell me a little bit more about your role at Frisbee Memorial Hospital. Absolutely. So I'm a cardiologist employed by HCA, and HCA has a number of hospitals in New Hampshire, uh, currently Portsmouth Hospital, Parkland Hospital, and Frisbee Hospital. And I come up to uh, Frisbee Hospital once a week, and the team is up here three days a week, and we provide uh, inpatient coverage, seeing patients in the hospital, uh, outpatient coverage, seeing patients in clinic, and testing such as echocardiograms and stress tests. What is the difference between a cardiologist and an interventional cardiologist, if I'm saying that correctly? And what does that mean for the, your patients? Sure. So uh, cardiology has kind of uh, has a number of subspecialties involved. Um, and specifically, interventional cardiology uh, does uh, cardiac catheterizations and stents. And we typically treat people who are either having angina or chest discomfort, and we do a procedure and put in a stent. Or if they're coming into the hospital with a heart attack, then we treat them more acutely taking pictures of the heart arteries, and then placing a stent. Hmm. Okay. And uh, most people have heard that heart disease is pervasive, and that message is shared even more during Heart Month in February, which I wasn't even aware that we had a month for that. But it's good information to have year-round. So what are some of the risk factors of heart disease? So, uh, yeah, there's a number of risk factors. There's a month for just about everything now. So. You know, I think the biggest ones that we can treat readily with medications are elevated cholesterol and high blood pressure. Those are amenable and pretty well treated with medical therapy. Uh, Some of the others are smoking, which I think uh, most people would know by now. And then just staying active, daily activity, and trying to eat a healthy diet. There's a lot of months for everything, and a lot of it's to raise awareness, but some things I feel like we we are pretty aware of, um, and I won't pick on any one month in particular, but um, more people are affected by heart disease in this country than almost any of the other uh, months that we celebrate. So why, why do you think that is? What, what is it about heart disease that doesn't get talked about the same way as, say, like breast cancer or any of the other... I think some of the heart uh, heart disease is somewhat insidious. So there's the very obvious episodes with people having a heart attack. Um, And those are clear and and people can kind of see them often a little more clearly and dramatically. But there's a lot of insidious things that happen over time. So, for example, uh, if you have long-term high blood pressure, that can lead to strokes. And, And sometimes... Even some of these things that are not as dramatic, you know, somebody may not come in with a dramatic heart attack or a dramatic stroke, but they may have many strokes or many heart attacks over time. And then as time goes by, their their ability to be active or exercise starts to slowly decline. And I think a lot of that, we've done a pretty good job treating the, the major stuff and the dramatic 
things, uh, but there's still a lot behind the scenes where people kind of decline quietly over time and may not realize it, and there can be a cardiac source, source of that. What lifestyle changes can people make to try to avoid heart disease? Uh, so number one, probably the biggest one is to avoid smoking. Um, and then some of the dietary changes are really probably the big thing now are to, to watch out for the carbohydrates. They come in all sorts of forms, whether it's rice and bread to, to just simple sugars and, and soda drinks. But carbohydrates are a big one. Um, the, other, the other area to stay active is, is probably easier than people realize. Simply getting out and going for a walk um, is, is really great exercise. And if people can get in a 20 to 30 minute walk a day, that's outstanding. Um, you don't have to feel like you don't have to join a gym. You can if that's your, the type of thing that you like. Um, and you can do all these other activities. But getting out, simply doing a walk, that's going to be wonders for you. And it's a great exercise. Do you see a lot of people take that advice or do you feel like it's inconvenient for some people? They don't really want to change their lifestyle. Do you see that or? Yeah, I think a lot of folks um, have difficulty changing their lifestyle. Um, but there's a lot of barriers sometimes that are in place that make it difficult. Um, you know, folks who work, uh, who do shift work, who especially work a night shift, they may come home when they're just tired. Or if you're just working during the day, especially this time of year, you come home and it's dark out, your motivation to go exercise is not going to be there. And, you know, I think one of the other things that's very important, and especially for a, for a city like Rochester to think about is, 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 are, is it a walkable city? Um, and for a lot of folks who may not live, say, close to downtown, um, there's no place for them to go walk. They walk out of their house and it's a busy road. And yeah. there's just nowhere to go. Um, and, and that makes it, you know, that's almost, un, it's very unfortunate. Sometimes I think there's a irony that you feel like you kind of live in a somewhat more rural area. But then despite being kind of more in the country, there's actually no place to go for a walk. Um, and I think those are some of the big barriers. Yeah, well, certainly I can relate to that, too. It's like after a long day, you go home and it's like, and especially if it's dark by the time you get home, it's like, it's, it's really hard to find that motivation. And, um, you know, I hear that people wake up, you know, earlier in the morning so they can go exercise, but I haven't come to that. Uh, so do you have any advice for people that want to get in shape? But like, they just, how do you balance it? I just, and, it is. I'm asking for a friend, not so much for myself. Sure, it's tough. I mean, it's definitely a, um, you know, not everybody's going to be a morning person. I, I would say probably the biggest things are kind of dedicating to it and then biting off a, a piece that's not too big. I, I think where people run into trouble is they say, well, I'm going to I'm going to train for this race. I'm going to run in this race or I'm going to get a gym membership and I'm going to go an hour a day. And you know, as life starts to get back in the way, that becomes uh, too difficult. But most of the time, I think if you can set aside 20 minutes, even if you can't even do 20 minutes, if you can just say, I'm going to go for a walk for 15 minutes, um, that's a little bit more approachable. And maybe you fit it in during a lunch break if you can't get home in time. Um, and, and if you can fit those in, that would be that would be ideal. Is heart disease genetic? And if so... Will changing any of those habits really make a big difference? 
so yes to both questions. Uh, there is a genetic component, but there's also a strong um, lifestyle component. And I would say even for folks who who we see every now and then, not, not frequently, but we do see patients who are in pretty good shape and they come in with a heart attack. Um, but I wouldn't let that discourage people from trying to stay healthy because even for those folks who come in healthy with one problem, we can do a pretty good job of treating that one problem and then they recover faster and they get back to their life a lot faster and it's easier to kind of treat when you have multiple problems, then one problem starts to kind of interact with another problem, and it becomes difficult even to treat, um, even to treat something like a heart attack when there's kind of layered problems on top of it. Mm-hmm. Is it true that your heart only has so many beats? Um, so is that a good excuse for me to not have to exercise as much? <laughs> well, sort of yes and no. I I, I would say, say no more. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> One thing to think about, I think, if, if you kind of uh, ascribe to this idea of, you know, a, a limited number of beats, which is, I wouldn't say is strictly true, what happens is if you exercise, you raise your heart rate for a brief period, let's call it a half an hour to an hour a day, but the, the, res- the other result is that when you're in better shape, your resting heart rate is going to be lower, so the overall number of beats in any different given day, if you're in shape, is going to be lower. So if you are a proponent of the you know set number of heart the deterministic set number of heartbeats theory, you'll still do better with exercise because your average heart rate and your total heartbeats over the course of a week say will be will be less. Okay, thanks for answering that. I know a lot of people were concerned about that. S- sort of switching gears here. Now that it's winter, <laughs> I hate even saying that. We tend to hear stories about people having heart attacks while shoveling. Even if you don't have or don't know about any heart issues, what signs or symptoms should you be aware of? Uh, yeah. So I would say two things to that. Certainly, um, if you go out and you're doing heavy exertion and you start having chest pain, um, and it's, certainly if it's persisting, you want to get to the emergency room. I think. One of the important things to recognize about a heart attack is sometimes the symptoms are not always completely typical. And the earlier we can treat it, the better. Um, Where people get into trouble is that they sort of ride it out over the weekend and they come in. And a lot of times, if that artery is completely blocked, we can't get that muscle back if hours have gone by. So earlier is best. Um, the, uh, The issue with shoveling snow, I think, the cold may play some role, but I think the bigger issue is that for a lot of folks, that's the most exercise they do all year. So you may be fairly sedentary, and then all of a sudden the first snowstorm comes around. It's a, it's a wet snowstorm. you got a foot of snow, and you're doing more exercise than you have done since last February mm-hmm. um, at a pretty aggressive clip. And I think that more than anything else is where people get into trouble. If you stay in shape throughout the whole year, I wouldn't worry quite as much about the exerting yourself for the shoveling snow. So your suggestion to those folks is to move to an even colder climate where they're shoveling at, at a more regular basis. If they can shovel all year, they'll be fine. Then they'll yeah. stay in shape. I feel you heard it here first. <laughs> um, speaking of cold weather, um, is cold weather itself bad for people with heart issues? Is, or is that a myth? Um, it's not completely a myth. I don't think cold weather per se is bad. There is, 
some occasions where the, the arteries themselves um, have actually a, a very thin layer of muscle in them, so they can, they can clamp down. An analogy would be uh, your hands. If you go out in the cold, you can see sometimes your hands get cold, and the arteries that go out to your hands, they kind of clamp down to restrict blood flow. For, for some folks whose arteries are a little more active or twitchy, we might say, going out into the cold may provide that sort of stimulus or shock that the arteries do clamp down and they can get angina in that setting. Typically, arteries aren't going to behave that way if they're healthy. So if you have healthy arteries, the cold shouldn't be an issue. But yes, if you do have uh, artery disease, uh, those, those sudden cold episodes can cause what we call vasospasm or clamping down of the arteries and cause a chest pain episode. While we're kind of uh, on the subject of is this a myth or is this not a myth, what are some of the myths that you hear that you, you just laugh to yourself when it comes to heart disease or just general heart health? Uh, what are some of the misconceptions out there that you hear and you're just like, God, I wish that I could just tell everybody to stop thinking this? Well, I mean, probably the one that has the most, I would call it sort of controversy that swirls around it is, is cholesterol-lowering medication. Um, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, on the Internet, there's a lot of things that try to, to kind of uh, counter the theory that the lower the cholesterol is, that, you know, the lower the heart attack is, or that statins are bad. Um, I would say that um, a lot of, many, many clinical studies have shown that lower cholesterol is associated with a lower risk of a heart attack. Um, and the statin medications we've used for many years now, they have a very good proven track record. Um, and the other aspect to that is that if people do have uh, side effects to statins or they can't tolerate statin medications, there are a number of new medications out now that we can uh, treat people with to get their cholesterol down. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest, the biggest ones. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of folks who um, put a lot of credit into various supplements. Um, I think if you eat a healthy diet, um, by and large, you don't need to spend the money on supplements. There's a it's a pretty large industry that's sort of emerged around selling selling these things uh, with with very little clinical evidence. So it's kind of like snake oil, some of this stuff. Well, yes, and I, what, I think what happens is that there is a, there is sort of a, at least rationale around many of the supplements that, that makes fairly good sense. Um, however, when you kind of go to test that in clinical trials, it doesn't necessarily bear out. Um, and if you're eating a healthy diet, you're, you're probably getting all the various vitamins and minerals and things that you need from that. And um, I'd be kind of wary of folks trying to sell you a lot of uh, expensive uh, supplements. Yeah, especially when people are like working out or trying to build muscle or anything. I mean, there's a lot of that. It, it, part of that industry is like, you know, supplements and 
proteins and all these is any of that does any of that actually contribute to anything i mean i take a multivitamin every day do i really need to or is you, it if you eat your salad <laughs> if you eat your fruits and vegetables and you have a kind of a, a well-rounded diet you don't need a multivitamin i mean i love my b12 gummies because they're just <laughs> tasty and i can eat three four five of them at a time but i don't know if that's right but <laughs> no i mean i and i think there is a big there's a large industry that goes kind of around all of these different supplements and i would just be and i and I think that people who are believers in that um, are kind of strong believers in that. So mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to shake those foundations. But I would, I would apply for those folks out there who are kind of big believers in the supplements that the skepticism that they might apply to a lot of other areas, I would I would also apply to the supplement industry because it is a big money-making industry. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the research, that's, and I'm air quoting that out there, it, internet search results, um, yeah. you know, can be misleading as well. So they are some. I mean, they have very um, the 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 arguments for them can be fairly good and sound. But again, we've had a lot of uh, things in medicine where we think a particular medication is going to work really well. We have really great clinical, really great ideas. The theory behind it is 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 great. But then you go uh, and to get these you know medications approved, you have to test them in clinical trials, and then you test them in a clinical trial, and it doesn't pan out the way you had hoped. Um, so I think that's always the kind of the last place that we stop in the, you know, clinical medicine is, you know, how do the clinical trials show? Does the, does the rubber really meet the road? Is this thing actually going to work the way we, we had hoped it, it's going right. to work. And there's yeah. been a lot of failures along the way. Um, and a lot of the supplement industry is not subject to those types of clinical trials. So you've, you've been in this industry for a lot, in this profession for a long time and, um, Speaking of things that change over time and th things that we thought were the right treatment at one time, now we look back at and we think, oh my goodness, I can't believe the Kennedys lobotomized one in the 60s. It's like we would never think to do that now, but at the time that was a, you know, a, a treatment that many people thought was, was a good one. Um, is there anything in your time that you've seen as something that you did in the beginning of your career that you would never think of suggesting to people now, or is that just a, another one of those uh, overblown no, I, I mean, there, there haven't been so many, you know, huge paradigm shifts where we say, oh, what we did in the past was just crazy. But I, I would yeah. say there, the, the, or at least in the recent past, but I would say the biggest shift that's come along since my training is that we've, we've, we've seen more and more that the med good medical therapy is really has become the mainstay and is it's kind of tough for me because as an interventional cardiologist who likes to do procedures and put in stents, it certainly has its role um, and it works very well to alleviate patient's chest pain or to abort a heart attack if it's happening. But um, the medical therapy has really been the mainstay of what prevents heart attacks. So we're doing fewer stents now, fewer procedures, and really trying to make sure that people are on good uh, medications and it's the things that we had said in the beginning which is you know making sure the blood pressure is good making sure the cholesterol is good if you have diabetes treating the diabetes uh, healthy diet uh, exercise and and not smoking and those have become the mainstay um, of therapy yeah so you should probably put out that cigarette yes yeah. it's really inappropriate <laughs> at this point I know you spend a lot of time at Portsmouth Regional Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, which is first to be sister hospital for those that don't know. But are the cardiology programs separate uh, from from the two uh, institutions? And if they're connected, how do they work together? 
Yeah, right. I mean, in the past, they had been separate. Uh, now they are. It's really sort of all part of one program. Um, what we have done is that we're able to do things like echocardiograms. We can do at Frisbee, and then we can read them whether we're at Portsmouth or at Frisbee. Um, we are still working to build up uh, some of the resources at Frisbee Hospital. Um, you know, the hospital was bankrupt, and uh, there's a lot of building back that we have to do, and we're certainly in the process of doing that. We try to give as much availability as possible to patients, uh, but our team comes up from Portsmouth and sees patients at Frisbee. It's really the same team. So mm -hmm. whether you're at Frisbee or Portsmouth, you're getting the same cardiology coverage. Um, especially in the outpatient setting. Good to know, yeah. I want to ask you a few personal questions now that we're, we're past the prescribed questions, so now sure. I just want to... Um, one question that I ask professionals on this show a lot is, whatever possessed you to want to get involved in this field? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure. Just sort of one step kind of led to the other, and I just sort of found myself here in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think uh, I was a liberal arts major, actually a theology major in college, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed reading books. Sometimes I kind of wish I could just go back and just sort of sit in a library and read books all day. Uh, but I always felt like, you know, I wanted to be part of the adventure that people were, were experiencing in books, so to speak, and not just sort of uh, hidden away. Um, and I also enjoyed uh, science quite a bit. And uh, maybe because I, I just didn't have a lot of creativity, I just didn't think of any other way of kind of combining all of that together other than going into medicine. And then you know, one step led to the next. And as I went along, I enjoyed cardiology. And then within cardiology, I enjoyed interventional cardiology. So sort of a more organic than a dedicated, oh, I'm going to be this and working towards that goal. It wasn't like you were six years old and you were like, I'm going to be just like so-and-so no That's, no yeah, not yeah, at all yeah exactly now if you could uh take a different role in the medical field or in science or uh, what 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 would your alternative be if this if this doesn't work out for you doctor what, what's, um, what's next for you i think there i mean actually two things one is i, I think that organizing uh medicine in terms of databases we still have a lot to do to kind of get our medical records sorted. I think that's a very important thing. Um, we're certainly working on that. And, and um, you know, HCA is a, is a national corporation. And so I think we'll have a lot of records together uh, that will give us a lot of ability to do things. But I, th I think for a lot of PR patients who have experienced this, they go to see their doctor or they go to see a specialist and the records don't cross over and nobody knows you know, what's what, and people get frustrated, appropriately so, because the records don't communicate. So I think that's one uh, big thing. I, I think the other thing is, I would certainly be an advocate for, for walkable towns, um, getting back to the idea of exercise, and uh, I think having a town to live in where you can walk most places is, is really tremendous. Um, and it benefits a lot of patients. Uh, I, I talk to patients where transportation is a, is a major issue for them, especially out here. Uh, sometimes they're reliant on the bus, which is, which is kind of spotty, or they're reliant on people to give them rides. And um, I think it's both, it's, it's difficult because they can't get the activity they need, but it's also incredibly isolating. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that sometimes you don't have in a big city, you can feel much lonelier here 
than if you could kind of walk out your apartment and, and kind of wander around in a city and see the sort of the hustle and bustle. So I think walkable communities is would be is very important. Because we're hiring for a senior planner right now, so if you yeah. if you want to, if you want, <laughs> how many hours a week is that? <laughs> Probably a lot less than whatever you're doing right now, is my guess. So, <laughs> well, that's our time for today. I want to just thank Dr. Chris Lawson for being on the show, and uh, I hope you'll come back at some point and give us an update about what you're working on. Absolutely, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for listening today, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. 